The Crystal of Buddha In ancient days there lived in Japan a great state minister named Kamatari. Now Kamatari's only daughter, Kohaku Jo, was extremely beautiful, and as good as she was beautiful. She was the delight of her father's heart, and he resolved that if she married, no one of less account than a king should be her husband. With this idea continually in his mind, he steadfastly refused the offers for her hand. One day there was a great tumult in the palace courtyard, and through the open gate streamed a number of men bearing a banner on which was worked a silken dragon on a yellow background. Kamatari learned that these men had come from the court of China with a message from the Emperor Koso. The Emperor had heard of the exceeding beauty and exquisite charm of Kohaku Jo and desired to marry her. As is usual in the East on such occasions, the Emperor's offer was accompanied with the promise that if Kohaku Jo should become his bride, he would allow her to choose from his store of treasures whatever she liked to send to her own country. After Kamatari had received the envoys with due pomp and ceremony and put at their disposal a whole wing of the palace, he returned to his own room and bade his servant bring his daughter into his presence. When Kohaku had entered her father's room, she bowed before him and sat patiently on the white mats waiting for her august parents to speak to her. Kamatari told her that he had chosen the Emperor of China to be her husband, and the little maid wept on hearing the news. She had been so happy in her own home, and China seemed such a long way away. However, when her father foretold more happiness in the future than she had ever had in the past, she dried her eyes and listened to her parents' words, a little amazed to hear, perhaps, that all China's greatest treasures were to be laid at her own small feet. She was glad when her father told her that she would be able to send three of these treasures to the temple of Kofukuji, where she had received a blessing as a baby. So Kohaku obeyed her father with not a little misgiving and not a little heartache. Her girl companions wept when they heard the news, but they were consoled when Kohaku's mother told them that some of their number would be chosen to go with their mistress. Before Kohaku sailed for China, she wended her way to the beloved temple of Kofukuji, and, arriving at the sacred shrine, she prayed for protection in her journey, vowing that if her prayers were answered, she would search China for its three most precious treasures and send them to the temple as a thank you offering. Kohaku reached China in safety and was received by the Emperor Koso with great magnificence. Her childish fears were soon dispelled by the emperor's kindness. Indeed, he showed her considerably more than kindness. He spoke to her in the language of a lover, saying, After long, long days of weary waiting, I have gathered the azalea of the distant mountain, and now I plant it in my garden, and great is the gladness of my heart. The emperor Koso led her from palace to palace and she knew not which was the most beautiful, but her royal husband was aware that she was far more lovely than any of them. Because of her great loveliness, he desired that it should be ever remembered throughout the length and breadth of China, even beyond the bounds of his kingdom. 
So he called together his goldsmiths and gardeners. He commanded them to fashion a path for the empress such as had never been heard of in the whole wide world. The stepping stones of this path were to be lotus flowers, carved out of silver and gold for her to walk on whenever she strolled forth under the trees or by the lake, so that it might be said that her beautiful feet were never soiled by touching the earth. And ever since then, in China and Japan, poet lovers and lover poets in song and sonnet and sweet conversation have called the feet of the women they love lotus feet. But in spite of all the magnificence that surrounded Kohaku, she did not forget her native land or the vow she had made in the temple of Kofukuji. One day, she timidly informed the emperor of her promise, and he, only too glad to have another opportunity of pleasing her, set before her such a store of beautiful and precious things that it seemed as if an exquisite phantom world of gay color and perfect form had suddenly come into being at her very feet. There was such a wealth of beautiful things that she found it very difficult to make a choice. She finally decided upon the following magical treasures. A musical instrument, which, if one struck, would continue to play forever. An inkstone box, which, on opening the lid, was found to contain an inexhaustible supply of Indian ink. And last of all, a beautiful crystal, in whose clear depths was to be seen, from whichever side you looked, an image of Buddha riding on a white elephant. The jewel was of transcending glory and shone like a star, and whoever gazed into its liquid depths and saw the blessed vision of Buddha had peace of heart forevermore. After Kohaku had gazed for some time upon these beautiful treasures, she sent for the Admiral Banko and made him safely convey them to the temple of Kofukuji. Everything went well with Admiral Banko and his ship until they were in Japanese waters, sailing into the bay of Shido no Ura, when a mighty tempest whirled the vessel hither and thither. The waves rolled up with the fierceness of wild beasts, and lightning continually blazed across the sky to light up for a moment a rolling ship, now flung high upon a mountain of water, now swept into a green valley from which it seemed it could never rise again. Suddenly, the storm abated with the same unexpectedness with which it had arisen. Some fairy hand had brushed up all the clouds and laid a blue and sparkling carpet across the sea. The admiral's first thought was for the safety of the treasures entrusted to him, and on going below, he discovered the musical instrument and inkstone box just as he had left them, but that the most precious of the treasures, Buddha's crystal, was missing. He contemplated taking his own life, so grieved was he at the loss, but on reflection he saw that it would be wiser to live so long as there was anything he could do to find the jewel. He accordingly hastened to land and informed Kamatari of his dreadful misfortune. No sooner had Kamatari been told about the loss of Buddha's crystal than his wise minister perceived that the dragon king of the sea had stolen it, and for that purpose had caused the storm, which had enabled him to steal the treasure unperceived. Kamatari offered a large reward to a number of fishermen he saw upon the shore of Shido if any of their number would venture into the sea 
and bring back the crystal. All the fishermen volunteered, but after many attempts, the precious jewel still remained in the keeping of the Sea King. Kamatari, much distressed, suddenly became aware of a poor woman carrying an infant in her arms. She begged the great minister that she might enter the sea and search for the crystal, and in spite of her frailty, she spoke with conviction. Her mother heart seemed to lend her courage. She made her request because if she succeeded in bringing back the crystal, she desired that as a reward, Kamatari should bring up her little son as a samurai in order that he might be something in life other than a humble fisherman. It will be remembered that Kamatari in his day had been ambitious for his daughter's welfare. He readily understood the poor woman's request and solemnly promised that if she carried out her part faithfully, he would gladly do his. The woman withdrew, and taking off her upper garments and tying a rope around her waist into which she stuck a knife, she was prepared for her perilous journey. Giving the end of the rope to a number of fishermen, she plunged into the water. At first, the woman saw the dim outline of rocks, the dart of a frightened fish, and the faint gold of the sand beneath her. Then she suddenly became aware of the roofs of the palace of the Sea King, a great and gorgeous building of coral, relieved here and there with clusters of many-colored seaweed. The palace was like a huge pagoda, rising tier upon tier. The woman swam nearer in order to inspect it more closely, and she perceived a bright light, more brilliant than the light of many moons, so bright that it dazzled her eyes. It was the light of the Buddha's crystal, of course, placed on the pinnacle of this vast abode and on every side of the shining jewel were guardian dragons fast asleep, appearing to watch even in their slumber. Up swam the woman, praying in her brave heart that the dragons might sleep until she was out of harm's way and in possession of the treasure. But no sooner had she snatched the crystal from its resting place than the guardians awoke, their great claws extended, and their tails furiously lashed the water and in another moment they were in hot pursuit. Rather than lose the crystal which she had won at so much peril, the woman cut a wound in her left breast and forced the jewel into the bleeding cavity, pressing her hand without a murmur of pain upon the poor torn flesh. When the dragons perceived that the water was murky with the woman's blood, they turned back, for sea dragons are afraid of the very sight of blood. Now the woman sharply pulled the rope, and the fisherman, sitting upon the rocks far above, drew her to land with ever-quickening speed. They gently laid her upon the shore, and found that her eyes were closed, and her breast bleeding profusely. Kamatari at first thought that the woman had risked her life in vain, but bending over her, he noticed the wound in her breast. At that moment she opened her eyes, and taking the jewel from its place of concealment, she murmured a few words about Kamatari's promise, then fell back dead with a smile of peace upon her face. Kamatari took the woman's child home and looked after him with all the loving care of a father. In due time, the boy grew to manhood and became a brave samurai, and at Kamatari's death he, too, became a great state minister. 
When in later years he learnt the story of his mother's act of self-sacrifice, he built a temple in the Bay of Shidonoura, in memory of one who was so brave and true. It is called Shidoji, and pilgrims visit this temple to remember the nobility of a poor shell-gatherer to this day. <laughs>